0: You know, there's some sort of alchemy there where it's a bunch of different voices, but they all feel like they belong under the same tent. And you just want to check in with it, you know, every week. It was, a, it was an
1: open, happy conspiracy to write about the people that you knew.
2: A lot of us just kind of ran in a pack for a while. And we were young enough that we didn't have to worry about early mornings or responsibilities.
3: Yeah, it was really a dream come true Mm -hmm. for a a 20 year old.
2: I just considered us sort of like this like special world of people who happened to be lucky enough to be able to do this.
4: For 26 years, two rival magazines existed as the alternative weekly press in one blue-collar Canadian prairie city. This is the story of View Weekly and C Magazine, two weekly papers that ran in Edmonton between 1992 and 2018. This is an elegy and love letter to those papers. Their rise, glory days, notorious rivalry, and eventual decline. I'm Andrew Paul. I'm Fonda Mithrush. I'm Paul Blinov. This is a tale of two weeklies. by the late 90s, alt-weekly papers were blooming across the continent. They were packed with local news, opinions, and arts features. Most major cities had at least one free weekly. But now that two different alt-weeklies, View Weekly and C Magazine, had emerged in Edmonton, an ecosystem was starting to form around their rivaling coverage. Readers could pick up both See and View on Thursdays, planning out their weekends and reading local-focused features on arts and events. Artists found coverage, features, reviews, and clippings to draw from both magazines. They would vie for mentions in either paper, or ideally both. And writers, especially emerging ones, suddenly had two new paying outlets to pitch and pen for. Not that the pay was particularly good. Standard rates for paper article didn't change much from what they were in the late 90s. But the magazines provided inches for conversation and expression. And they were distributed all over the city. They were, if anything, a chance for writers to hone their voices. And for plenty of young scribes looking to freelance, the between-paper rivalry didn't quite hold the same relevance it did for the staff working in the respective offices. In this episode, we focus on some of the voices that emerged during Edmonton's golden alt-weekly era. There are a lot of voices. You'll also hear all of the podcast producers
1: in these interviews as well. I mean, here's the thing. That huge war happened and everything split apart, and Ron went and reformed view, and all sorts of people had opinions about it and everything. And then, in the ruins of all that, like there's this sort of like shattered sea, and I just walked into it, and I didn't know anything about that stuff for like I don't know a year or two afterwards.
4: That's Fish Krakowski. Here in 2019, he's an art critic for the Edmonton Journal and a freelance cartoonist. But Grukowski joined the alt-writing scene over a decade ago after cutting his teeth at the University of Alberta's student newspaper, The Gateway. A longtime columnist for C Magazine thereafter, the alt-weekly format let Krakowski hone his voice the way he wanted to, which didn't follow traditional journalistic parameters.
1: I get called a journalist, but I feel like a diarist more in a lot of ways, like uh, what I ended up doing for C sort of at its, in its heyday was live in the city and record and take photos of the bands I was watching and, and, and just drop it all into the paper and get, and I mean, this was just, A, it was fun and, you know, we got to drink and everything, but also there was the sense of um, a history being laid down. The
4: papers were offering a sort of living history and doing it in a more personal voice than the daily papers would ever frame their coverage in. Writers covered the things near and dear to their hearts. The column Grakowski eventually anchored in C Magazine, Wildlife, would feature the happenings at the bar scene on any given weekend. It was all seen through the lens of his personal connections. And for a then-young writer like Grakowski, on the outside of the offices, the rivalry was more of an inconvenient social obstacle than an actual line in the sand.
1: I came into the view C battle with that in mind, essentially, where I'm just like, well, they're people. Certainly, I heard I heard that C people were vilified to some degree because of the battle or whatever. But um, you know, when you when, when I went and hung out with them, all that goes away. Always, it's a modern lesson we could remember right now. I mean, it's always better to talk pe- talk to people face to face. And uh, you know, when you're mad at someone and they're not in the room, it's going to grow and fester. But if they're actually right there, then you know, it, it, it does subside a bit. But yeah, so we, we technically weren't, but uh, I really loved it. Like occasionally I would shoot a photo for, of a band or something like that. And then that really good photo of the band would be like the cover of view. And I was just laughing my head off. I'm like, oh my God, they're going to be mad at me at sea, but it felt so great. And I mean, I think a whole big part of the sea view thing is that, you know, when you're younger, you're just so excited about all these sort of firsts. And you're, you're really first time you get a cover, first time you see your name in print, first time you get a photo in the paper, anything like that. Like it's it's really, really exciting. And then and then if you do a great job and you get a lot of feedback, that's gravy, too. So that
4: excitement was pervasive in the young writers that filled the Weekly's pages. For Brian Bertels, who went from freelance writer to an editor review, the Weeklies were something he grew up with.
3: I was aware of all weeklies by the time I was 13 or 14. I first started going to punk shows then. And, um, and that's where you could read actual interviews with the guys who were in the bands. And so, so I've been picking it up since then.
4: The alt papers were a bridge into that world. Later, when a friend became music editor, Bertels started writing CD reviews, which was the extent of his involvement for a few months. Then somebody else fucked up. A writer couldn't make a scheduled interview with a band, and Bertels was there to take it. And little by little, he managed to work into a permanent employment with the paper, first as a one-day-a-week copy editor, then as an editor for multiple smaller sections.
3: They needed some extra help on Tuesdays, which was production day at the time, mm-hmm. and so they... They, they said, well, we'll pay you for a day a week and you can come in and, and copy it on Tuesdays. And so I started doing that and then I just sort of kept sneaking in on Wednesdays and uh, then I started going to the staff meetings on Fridays and then all of a sudden I was just, any section that somebody didn't want, I would say, yeah, yeah, I can take that on. A lot of what, what all weekly cultures are it is just an effort to save money and so as i took on more and more responsibility if you were to give those responsibilities out to five well i shouldn't be so up on myself three other people like if you were just to spread them around instead of giving them to me you have to pay those people adequate salaries but if you give all the responsibilities to one person you can just kind of give them like a little bump, each new responsibility they take on, but you don't have to pay nearly as much. And that's kind of the same thing with people who are just hanging around. If you, you know, if we were to poach somebody from C or mm-hmm. we were to poach somebody from another city, we would have to entice them with a, with a big, with a big check, you know, mm-hmm. but if it's, if you're moving a freelancer up to an editor, you can just say, hey, here's what the last editor got, that's what we're gonna pay you. It's sort of, it's easier to just turn over like that in all
4: weeklies. The pay was low, but it was livable, and Brittles was embracing a teenage dream. He was immersed in the cultural scene of the city with the access and prestige that came with the newspaper job.
3: The money, the money view was never great, I was at a, you know, I was at a newspaper conference one time, and and somebody said to me, you know, this job won't make you a millionaire, but you'll never have to be. And I and I really believe that because a lot of what you get out of out of an all weekly is that you get to do the things you already love. You get to do them for free. So I got to go to any sh- any show that I wanted to go to. I could just call up the promoter and I could go for free. And then I was there. I was I was doing the things that I wanted to do anyways, and I didn't have to pay for it. So I had a lot more money left over for beer. And then, uh, boy, I drank a lot of it. So yeah, it was it was totally amazing.
4: Right, right. Living up to sort of that, that teenage dream of what what working at an alt weekly might be like.
3: Exactly. No, exactly. I was talking to all my favorite bands. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was drinking as much beer as I could. Mm-hmm. I was I was out oh, five nights a week because I would only not go out on on production days because I needed to be in the office very like, early. Mm-hmm. But most of the days I would, I would stay out all night and then breeze into the office at like one. And that was totally acceptable because that was my job. Yeah, <laughs> it was really a dream come true mm-hmm. for a 20 for year old.
4: Another young voice that appeared in both papers was that of Roly Pemberton. You might know him better as rapper Cadence Weapon. He started out at C and moved over to View in later years.
5: Yeah, when I first started writing for C, um, I was still a teenager. And um, I was finding myself uh, very isolated at the time. And I was like writing a little bit at the time for Pitchfork. My, my first editor was uh, Zoltan. And uh, he was a very influential guy to me. He was a very cool guy. I really liked him. And he, weirdly enough, took me extremely seriously for you know, just being like a random teenager off the street in Edmonton. Uh, and he really encouraged me with a lot of the writing. And I think like some of the earliest stuff, I would be doing probably like underground rap, like album reviews and stuff. Like I used to, you know, I, I remember I, I reviewed the Killers album too. Uh, Cause I, you'd get the promos, you get all the CDs and like I'd review whatever free CDs and I couldn't believe it also. I was getting CDs for free. This is the best job ever. Zoltan Varady had become an editor at C
4: after working at Calgary's Weekly Fast Forward for a number of years. He continued to freelance with C
6: until 2008. Cadence Weapon was still in high school, or maybe junior high, because he, he approached us a little bit later. I actually, I remember him. There's a story. He sent me an email saying, yo, a resume. And I ignored it. I was like, what the hell is this kid? And then I saw his name mentioned in Pitchfork as a reviewer. And I was like, hey, that's the same kid. So I gave him a call, and uh, he started writing for us.
4: Verratti's style was suited for the Alt Weekly beat, but there were also times he felt he may have been an ill fit for the music section, especially when it came to comparing C's coverage to Views.
6: I think we were a little bit more comprehensive on things like, uh, and and again, this is all blurry to me, but I think maybe in things like theater and whatnot, we were, seemed to me a little more comprehensive. And uh, I think their music coverage was a little bit, and this is a little bit maybe a condemnation of myself because I was music editor, but I think they were a little bit younger and hipper. I was, I was holding on to the, the dying embers of, rock music and we would try and compensate for that by bringing in writers to write about things I had no knowledge of like uh, electronic music and hip-hop and stuff that's why I brought in Rolly to write about he had his finger on new indie bands not even hip-hop but new indie bands that I had never even heard of because he'd get the records through you know legal downloads before they dropped and I wasn't even doing that sort of thing yet I was still getting my physical copies from the record company so he he knew about a lot of stuff that I did not and so you know we would put Ike Turner on the cover and they would put on Wilco who at that time were you know their dad rock now but at the time they were critical darlings and so I think it kind of skewed that way Did you ever get any pushback from the Ike
7: Turner story?
6: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I called Ike out on, on, I asked him about, and he gave me some dance around about how they were both he and Tina were hotheads and kind of let it slide a bit. But I did, I did bring it up. But no, I didn't get any pushback. This is the old dark days of where people could get away with being horrible human beings and still have careers so as a writer you know trying things out and doing things the thing about the weekly is that you always had next week right You always kind of like got another shot do you ever feel like there were any sort of mistakes or regrets that you had about certain stories or reviews or anything like that i'm the type of person who cringes at pretty much everything i've ever done ever so (laughs) i can't i can't pick one um yeah my whole Career is a series of regrets. There were some small victories, though. Ferrati recalls one instance when he and the C editors responded directly to a cover that ran in View. I, I have one that where I was kind of being a disturber and wasn't where I was being critical of View actually. So that's how it all ties in. But View put in some, put out some addition. And I don't even remember what the story was, but it was about the Edmonton music scene. And they gathered a bunch of local musicians and for their front cover and photographed them on the steps of the legislature. And my editor, Kevin, was like...
4: That's referring to Kevin Wilson, who was managing editor at C from 2001
6: until 2008. And my editor, Kevin, was like, Every, everyone in this picture is a guy. And so we mounted our own rebuttal, which was supposed to be kind of funny, but also make them mad a bit. And we got musicians from every walk of life and all genders to, we basically recreated the shot, but more diverse. And we knew it was going to make them angry, but I didn't anticipate the anger that came. Remember that, that kind of punk uh, chat site in Decline? Yeah, they went nuts slamming me. <laughs> so uh And so that was that was interesting. You might have noticed by now that
4: most of the voices we've talked to in this series so far are male, white males. It's from a point of privilege that so many of these young, single, educated, or otherwise guys were able to get away with extended periods of working for very little, with or without student debt, for a lot longer than someone from a different background or with significant societal ladders to climb. They could spend time being freelancers, and that consistency and regularity would make them the next ones in line for larger roles at the papers. We didn't find many writers or editors in the historical staff directories who had children when they worked there, or who were persons of color. And comparatively few women made it to the higher ranks of the editorial teams during both magazines' lifetimes. As our story gets closer to the present day, the pool of voices diversifies a little bit. But especially back then, these were very white, very male environments. Anyway. Most of the writers for both papers knew each other, if not by friendship, then at least by bylines. And the act of writing for one or both papers carried some social weight. Mary Sassano, a longtime freelancer for C, found her way into that scene through a moment of serendipitous timing.
2: So basically, I just finished my master's degree, and um, I was doing whatever I could at the time. I was making sandwiches, I was doing temp jobs, and... um, First, I actually, I actually approached View with just some clippings because I, and they kind of looked me up and down and said, Thank you for coming to our office. And I never heard from them again. Mm-hmm. And then, and so like, and I kind of was talking to people about maybe wanting to write. And my sister's ex boyfriend's band, the drummer was Scott Lingley. And so um, my sister's ex boyfriend said, You should take some stuff down. And I'm like, Oh, well, that's probably a good idea. And they just fired someone, so I would write place at the right time. And so they gave me, like, one little movie review, and then that was it. Like, I got regular work every week. And after a while, I like, started to write for other places, for the journal. and um, But, I've, yeah, like, I wrote for C for, like, like, a really long time, like 10 or 12 years.
4: Those 10 or 12 years placed Susano in the thick of that culture, with all of its highs and lows.
2: A lot of us just kind of ran in a pack for a while, and we were young enough that we didn't have to worry about early mornings or responsibilities, and um, it was quite a lot of fun. Like, I was in my mid to late 20s into my 30s, and there were a lot of things about that time that were, like, the absolutely worst. Like, some of the things at that, at that time were, like, really super hard, and part of that was about you know, certain people that uh, were maybe not really good for me in that that scene. But at the same time, like, it was an awful lot of fun and I think we did kind of push each other. Like, I just considered us sort of like this, like, special world of people who happened to be lucky enough to be able to do this. Um, how do you feel that those years and maybe that
6: lifestyle impacted your your career and everything that you do now moving forward? What do
2: you <laughs> what did you still take what did you take from that experience? Um, well, I'm not really scared of uncertainty. I'm not afraid of making do. There are a lot of situations that people find terrifying, like the un- in- instability of it, or you know, like what if I get into a situation I can't get out of? Well. Clearly, some situations might be very dangerous and, and um, might lead to disaster. But if you survive those things, you're probably going to be okay. Figuring out how to become like the eye of the storm is super useful. I work with people who have never, you know, who talk about, well, maybe someday I will quit my job and then I'll do this. Like, maybe, maybe you should do that before you're too old to enjoy it.
4: For many who worked in and around the papers, the rivalry existed in a bubble that was only visible to them. On the outside, the rift between the papers wasn't nearly as apparent as it would become for anyone who crossed either C or View's doors for a reasonable amount of time. Such was the case for Vicky Warchinsky, a production designer at View.
7: I didn't even realize that View and C were basically the same word spelled differently. (laughs) You know what I mean? And somebody pointed it out to me uh, when I'm, when I got there and I was like, Oh wow. Like, okay. You know, and then they kind of just like people at the office just naturally start telling you about this like universe they lived in mm-hmm. where these two papers were like fighting it out to the death. And I drank the Kool-Aid pretty quick, mm-hmm. you know, but out of the two, even before I worked at Vue, I felt like Vue was somehow better and I don't really, I can't really explain that. Mm-hmm. It felt more homey, felt less alien. Right. But maybe that's just because I never set foot in C offices, you know? Right. Like, who knows? Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah.
4: Wachinsky had applied to work at View after seeing a job posting on Craigslist. She was hired almost immediately.
7: I later found out that they were so screwed for staff that <laughs> Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they, they, they were actually sitting there going, how are we going to make it through the next two weeks? And then I applied.
1: Like, yes. You know, and so
7: it was this kind of um, really great mix of just being in the right place at the right time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also then finding that I actually am quite good at layout, quite, you know, quite fast at producing graphics. And it was a really good fit for a while.
4: The bulk of Wierczynski's job involved designing and laying out the ads that would bracket the paper's pages. Just like for the editorial staff, that meant long hours and a sense of camaraderie.
7: I always call this job like the ad factory. Like, I made quite possibly hundreds of ads a week. And, you know, I had good skills. You know, I was a good young designer and I learned how to get fast and I learned how to get really quick with. Things which is actually very valuable as a you know as you move forward in your career. So that was super cool. Um, and so I I just remember being handed like an ad roster and just being like okay well here's the content here's the photo like start pumping these out mm-hmm. you know yeah. and I did and it was fine it was great and like we, there was this big like horseshoe production room kind of in the middle of view I'm sure anyone who's been in the offices remembers it mm-hmm. so. It was me and the layout guy and Mike Seek and Lyle Bell. Mm-hmm. There might have been someone else floating around. Yeah, I don't know. Lyle just, like, played great music. Yeah. <laughs> and we'd just sit there and, and and get things done, you know? There were some long nights that I got used to. I, I liked it. Definitely wasn't, like, a 9 to 5, like, standard job, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then every week we'd just, like, there would be this, like, race to the finish line, which was Wednesday at noon. Mm-hmm. Paper went to print. Yeah, we'd all, like, a lot of the time we'd wind up at the Commodore afterwards, like, eating a, eating a burger and some curly fries yeah. in this old version of downtown that I don't even know exists anymore, but we would wander through these dusty uh, surface parking lots and, you know, go to the Commodore and, like, celebrate the paper being out or something.
4: For some young writers, with their sights set on a byline in one of the Alt Weekly's pages, picking aside was necessary. Sometimes, the choice of writing for C or view was made with full understanding of the between-paper situation. Other times, it was based on something else, a more instinctive reaction to the coverage of what was inside one or both papers.
8: Well, okay, another thing I remember, and this kind of, I guess, fits into the idea of the rivalry, was like, when I was first starting out, it was a bit of an open question, like, do I go to C? do I go to view? This is David Barry.
4: Who cycled through a number of editorial roles at View Weekly before departing for the National Post for a time. He now freelances, and in May 2020, his first book on nostalgia will be published with Coach House Books.
8: Like I knew I wanted to do arts writing of some kind, um, and so there was the this vivid memory i have of uh the shape of things which was a citadel theater production uh, i want to say 2003 and i was i had to see it for a class actually i was in it was it's a like theater class and uh the teacher of this class loved neil labute loved this play couldn't get enough of it and like whatever your feelings on him i i don't like him and this play in particular is just like I find it like freshman garbage is just like over the top and so galling uh, most of its construction I think. And the like top of this is the opening line which is like they're in a museum or something like that and the guy, the first line of the play is, sir, I think you've stepped over the line. And it's just like, are you kidding me? Like, I'd, like this is how you're opening your thing? Which so it's like it always like clanged for me and I hated that shit and I remember going to read the reviews in View and C afterwards, and the C review, the reviewer will remain nameless, like, called this out as like, this is how brilliant and transgressive this play is. It opens with, sir, you've stepped over the line. And the View review opened with a discussion of how, like, this is exactly the kind of dumb bullshit that idiots who don't know what they're talking about focus on. And, like, so, like, obviously, he, they couldn't have known what each other was writing. It was just, like, a perfect uh you know like parallel thinking except opposite uh sort of thing but so that like the instant i read that i was like okay i probably have to go to view like this is (laughs) whether they're right or wrong or whatever like they're clearly the ones i agree with about this stuff so like yeah that was that was it that was like that was the moment that i was like okay yeah this is this is my paper
4: author michael hinkston who's now a full-time publisher at Hingston & Olsen, the outlet responsible for bespoke projects like the short story Advent Calendar and the Ghost Box collaboration with Patton Oswalt, began writing for C Magazine shortly after moving to Edmonton from Vancouver. He didn't know the particulars of the paper's rivalry, but pitched C based on what happened to be on the cover that particular week.
9: So I moved to Edmonton in spring of 2008, I was an aspiring arts writer with two clips under my belt or something like that. And uh, I, one of the pieces i published just before moving here was in an alt-weekly. So when I moved to Edmonton, I thought, I should see if they have an alt-weekly and then maybe I can get a story or two with them. And I remember walking down Jasper the first week I moved here and there were two of them couldn't believe it. Like two, not identical, but similar looking boxes next to each other. And I I just couldn't believe my luck. You know, Vancouver has one big one. uh, And as someone looking for work, seeing two was a very good sign for my future job prospects. So I was very early in my career. And um, when I saw those boxes, I had to decide which one I was going to Contact first. I had a uh, inkling that you couldn't write for both. It was my hunch uh, at the time, and so I remember the the cover of C that week was a was was a bit cooler. I thought I had a picture of Cadence Weapon on the front. I remember it very clearly. Blue background. He's kind of like pumping his fist almost. And uh, so, based on literally the cover of the issue that week, I went home and and pitched C uh, or offered C my services.
4: Cadence Weapon or Roly Pemberton was someone who was on both sides of the weekly, sometimes writing for them, sometimes being written about as a musician and later as Edmonton's poet laureate. Pemberton took it as a particular badge of pride to get coverage in the papers, especially the cover, having his image peering out from thousands of news boxes all over the city.
5: Oh, that was my ultimate goal. That's the thing, like, it was like, I got on the cover of C Magazine, I'll never forget, there's like a picture of me like jumping in the air. And I was like, man, I made it. You know that was just like the most iconic thing. It was like being on the cover of the Village Voice or something. If you're in New York, like it was just so significant to me. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and I was on I was on View for the Poet Laureate thing. I I was I'm very proud to have been in the final issue of View as well. Um, I don't know. It's just been that was like the ultimate status symbol. You know, like it's just like wow, like. Everybody at the Sugar Bowl is, like, reading about me. You know, it's like, it seems like I could be playing, like, Glastonbury or something and wouldn't matter as much.
4: For editors, it was a point of pride to discover an excellent new writer, one who would go on to a meaningful career in publishing or otherwise. Paul Matwichek, who had extended tenures as an editor at both C and View, recalls the moments of discovery with some vindication.
0: You know, like I remember um, the first time that Michael Hingston submitted an article to me. I I, I said to the other people, "Oh, I say, oh, this guy's going to have a very successful career, uh, and he has. He's published. He's published books. He's got his own publishing company, and I feel like." I mean, you know, I, I think anybody would have realized that he was good, but I was the one who happened to give him his first uh, professional writing job. So and I think there's, there's a whole, you know, succession of people like that. Um, so I think we had a really strong stable of writers during those years who were very knowledgeable, took their job seriously, were very good interviewers and very good writers. And I think we had a, a product that was the equal of anything in the city, at least as far as, you know, entertainment coverage.
4: When Matwachek started out, he was at VIEW. His main interest was writing about film, and it was a rewarding gig to have, especially when it meant booking interviews with moguls of that industry. The style of VIEW's coverage, he says, was what drew him to the paper.
0: My impression, I guess the reason why I walked into the office at VIEW rather than the office at C, that first, you know, fateful day. As I recall, I guess I was thinking that VIEW just seemed, it seemed better written to me. And I, I, you know, this is so long ago. This is like twenty years ago. I don't know what I would exactly point to to say why I thought it was better written. I think it also. I think uh, C seemed a little more um, like it was. It was the home of like Fish Krakowski and Darren Zenko, and I and I wasn't quite as like rough and tumble as those guys. I wasn't as much of a cool kid uh, as them. And View seemed a little more. Serious and disciplined, and I guess I was a little more buttoned up than than that. You know, I don't know if I would stick by that assessment. Matt Wachuk mentions Darren Zenko there.
4: Zenko was an entertainment columnist for both magazines at various times and became known for his column titled "The Most Famous Guy in Town." He went on to be a video game reviewer and contributor to the Toronto Star. A number of writers from both weeklies remember him well.
0: One of my favorites was uh, on our ship was uh, Darren Zenko. The late, most famous guy in town, he was a guy who, uh, whose advice to young aspiring writers was don't file your copy until the last fucking minute because then they can't screw with it. And it worked. I mean, uh, it was fun. He had lots of ideas. This was a guy who was uh, such a hustler and such an imaginative guy. You know what his best thing was? He uh, wrote a review of a Bus Route, I think the 107 or something like this. And he just went from one end to the other end back. And uh, it was a pretty... Going through some sketchy parts of town with different characters getting on and off the bus. And and he wrote this as a a story for us. And then many years later, he wrote the same story for View. It was brilliant.
8: One of my other favorites, uh, I guess, was Darren Zenko, who sadly is no longer with us, who, like, uh, I think introduced... Certainly Edmonton and maybe most of Canada through some sort of weird freelance thing to Pokemon, actually. He, like, went over, happened to visit Japan, saw Pokemon, was convinced it was going to be huge, and brought it over here and, like, actually talked a bunch of people into doing it. But also just uh, was maybe the most brilliant writer I've ever known personally, and probably also, like, the laziest human being I've ever met uh like he i once saw him tell a panel of student journalists that the best way to make sure that no one messed with your writing was to send it in late that was his advice to aspiring journalists was miss your deadlines which he
1: basically never failed to do Zenko, yeah man he was great well he was like he again he was like he was this incredibly uh prolific writer and he was always hustling and he had the, the great thing about Darren is he, he knew that his here's the thing like he would he was he would like beat the newspaper quite often and be like you don't deserve me <laughs> like he was he was so convinced of his own genius but he wasn't entirely wrong that's yeah. the thing about him but his writing always needed like more time and 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 and, and, and more editing but um, it was it was it was so energized and so great and his mind worked it was just so Agile and uh, his interests were really wide. And uh, I think what's it, it, he, I know he had a rule which is like always file late so that they can't edit your copy. Like that was that. So I mean, I was, I, I laughed at that, but doesn't necessarily always work like that in the real world. But people did put up with him a lot because his his, his copy was so much fun like you just didn't know what you were going to get and you could assign him anything and and he would be able to write about anything and and and, and quite often just veer away the hell away from the Death Star Trench and like just <laughs> fly off into space but um yeah I, I, I just uh even the even the concept like the most famous guy in town was a parody of sort of like Kind of like Nick Lee's Graham Hicks style, like and it, it it started off very much about like the buffet table and stuff, and it was sort of a direct satire. But then it just became this mad diary of like you know being a Gen Xer who is too smart for his own good, basically. Yeah, <laughs> who like and and he was always getting in trouble and yeah it was, it, it, yeah. So I mean I I miss him a lot.
4: Zanko passed away from complications with cancer in 2012 at age 38. Two other prominent voices in the papers passed away during the magazine's timeline. One was Gilbert Bouchard in 2009 at the age of 47. He was a longtime contributor to C, CBC, and the Edmonton Journal's art section. Another was Ross Moroz, who was View's managing editor when he died in 2007. He was 24. With crews of writers and artists and more freedoms than in a traditional newspaper, the weeklies cultivated a style and a focus more niche than the papers of record could or wanted to provide. Local visual art shows, touring bands who had more indie cred than record sales, and political views would splash across their pages. When the papers hosted serialized content, it was of those with edgier voices, independent journalist Gwyn Dyer's clear breakdowns of international situations, or sex columnists like Dan Savage and Josie Vogels and their risque Q&As. Whether the focus was local or broad, written in-house or brought in from afar, more than anything, the papers took pride in covering offbeat interests, as Brian Bertels recalls.
3: I think that uh, what Weekly's provide is, is a look into an underground or a local scene that uh, dailies. Uh, certainly weren't doing at the time, and and I just don't think have ever had much of a capacity to do. They're they're much more mainstream. They need to sell a lot more papers than than we would have to move in order to make a profit. And so they need to talk about arts that have much more wide ranging uh, interests, like 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 a, a larger pool of people who might be interested. If it's if it's music, they would talk about. Um, Oh, you know, the Rolling Stones are coming or we've got to we've got to introduce the Queens of the Stone Age or or uh, the White Stripes or something. You mm-hmm. know, big, big bands. That's 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 the only things that they really have the capacity to cover. And I'm not calling out dailies. I, I think they're good. And I think that, uh, you know, someone like Fish Grikowski is is doing a good job right now of trying to bring the underground to the overground. Mm-hmm. And he's he, yeah, he's, and I think he's doing an excellent job. But again, he started in weeklies like, you
2: know, that's that's bread
4: and butter. So it was a life of low-wages but vibrant social experiences for those on the inside. Or at least that was the pleasant bubble they used to justify low pay to themselves. To the people being written about, the artists that filled the weekly's pages, the impact of the paper's coverage was significant. It could also vary wildly in its impact. Just because you wrote glowingly about a niche art form doesn't necessarily mean people would flock to it. Here's Grakowski again.
1: And I certainly know that the musicians appreciated that. And I used to ask them sometimes, you know, does it actually help? You know, you'll you'll write a preview of something and then you go to the show and like nine people go to it and you kind of think, oh, well, maybe that didn't work on my side. But the musicians were very happy about it because they could at least use a clipping to encourage being booked across the country.
4: That dynamic is a codependence between the writers and the scenes they covered a Venn diagram where the overlap was often bigger than the independent slices in any small to mid-sized city the people writing about art and the people making it are going to be in the same rooms more often than not in Edmonton those rooms could feel pretty tight sometimes
1: i certainly made a lot of friends and 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 we were all we were all in it together is the idea i mean it was it was a, it was an open happy conspiracy to write about the people that you knew i mean <laughs> i used to joke all the time about how you know See and view were just like writers writing about people they knew. I mean, it was, and and I I heard from people on the outside of that, or people that were new to town. It's like, how do you crack into that? And the answer was just basically simply like go to go to the bar three nights in a row, or go to shows, like be part of the scene. Still, the papers' rivalry did leave fractures to be worked around.
4: Longtime Sea editor and contributor Scott Lingley recalls both the social impacts of the Sea View divide, the risks of being seen with the figurative enemy and their battles over the most popular serialized content of almost any alt-weekly paper. Dan Savage's sex advice column, Savage Love
10: we would have a C best of party. And Dave Johnston, who was working for View, who was the music editor there for a long time, was walking by and Fish Krakowski and Steve Notley were friends with him. So they went and and dragged him into the bar. And he he acted like he had been pulled into a KKK rally or something. I think that, (laughs) I don't know what was going on on the other side, but I think there was a lot of demonizing going on about who we were and what we did. I remember at one point, we lost Dan Savage briefly, Savage Love. He told us that he didn't want to be in our paper anymore. And that had something to do with some approach that View had made to him and some things that they had told him about who we were. But that didn't last very long. That got sorted out, but it did. It. it gave Dan Savage an opportunity to ask for more money
9: yeah god, well, it was god bless was effect- <laughs> effective you know <laughs> yeah
10: and that was after he had been here you know he had he had come to Edmonton and we had run some events with him and given him an opportunity to flog his book and he had appeared uh, at a couple of public venues then we had sponsored that stuff and then after that somehow what he had heard about us was displeasing to him but it all got sorted out and he was back with us very short order Dan
4: Savage's column was immensely popular, even when it wasn't. His no holes barred discussion of sex and his willingness to answer even the most ludicrous of letters led to negative reactions from the public, especially from advertisers who were also sharing the weekly's pages.
10: There's another anecdote that I can mention. Mm-hmm. is the, So Dan Savage wrote a very famous column, which I believe is maybe known as the Lobster Column, it's, or Mud Shrimp Column. If you wish to read the column go ahead and Google
4: it. Google Dan Savage mud shrimp. It's there. Fair warning, it's a lot to handle. It's also almost certainly untrue. Most of Savage's response to the letter is, in fact, searching for any tangible link to it, which he can't find. But still, he serialized it, and C published it, and people didn't like it. They didn't like it a whole lot.
10: It's super disgusting. I won't. I won't reiterate the contents of that particular column, but we uh, we put it in our paper and put it out, and instantly lost like dozens of drops around the city. I personally entertained numerous very irate phone calls from proprietors of family establishments who did not want to have that filth in their in their establishment. Really? And there was even talk at city hall that that C Magazine was not going to be made available on public newsstands, like it would have to be behind a counter or something. I'm not sure how they were going to work it out, but there was some talk that this offensive material was just too broadly available.
4: There were other mud shrimp situations over the paper's lifetimes. After all, with their decidedly alternative slants, the papers were places where writers could push the envelope to discover the tolerances of what their audiences would accept in the pages of a free paper, and what would lead to hostile letters and boycotts. Having a forum to make mistakes, to deal with blowback, and to saddle up to do it all over again week after week was an invaluable training ground for so many writers, editors, and creatives as they began their careers. That didn't always feel good. If a glaring mistake made it past the editors or the wrong sort of controversy erupted around a story, those involved would think about it every time they passed the newspaper box that week. But for Lingley and others, that was part of the appeal. To dig yourself out of a hole you dug yourself into every single week just in time to get the next one out the door
10: yeah but there's nothing I don't think there's anything sort of on par of 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 an educational moment like doing something stupid in print right where you put it out in black and white into the world something ignorant or stupid or misjudged or just plain wrong and then you gotta live with it for at least a week while it sits out there on the racks waiting for people to pick it up Mm -hmm. and witness it i guess the only thing that i want to add is that it it was really it was great (laughs) it was really fun (laughs) even though it made me miserable and and eventually left me feeling sort of broken it was also kind of the best time of my life it's the it's my favorite job that i've ever had even though it was super hard Uh, and i learned a lot but mostly i learned by doing something stupid and then having to figure out a way to fix it A, a huge Regret of mine is that I didn't do a better job of archiving the stuff that I did while I was at sea, because it doesn't exist anymore. I imagine that Fish Krakowski has a large, flammable pile of sea clippings, because he was very much a, a hoarder in that regard. He was very good about keeping the stuff that had his byline on it, but me, not so much.
4: Next time on A Tale of Two Weeklies: Writers and editors weren't the only people benefiting from the weeklies. The art scene, often the focus of their pages, embraced the highs and lows of focused local coverage. Arts careers were chronicled in ink, a lot of it.
10: Well, it's, I would say that it's a theater town.
9: Yeah, so, reviews, reviews.
10: Yep, I think I've given two bombs.
3: And they were so, one of them still makes me angry to think about it because it was just so bad.
9: Lots of
4: young
0: artists get tied up in knots and, and work themselves into a... Frickin' frenzy. I look back and I really don't know how I was able (laughs) to uh, survive all of that.
6: I think it was kind of like an embarrassment of
4: riches, to be honest. A Tale of Two Weeklies is produced by Andrew Paul, Fonda Mithrush, and Paul Blinov. Music is by Luke Thompson. Artwork is by Michael Nunweiler. This series was made possible with project support from the Edmonton Heritage Council. Special thanks to Edmonton Community Foundation for use of their recording studio.